hope can be defined, well, maybe I should take a step back. And if you talk to somebody just on the street and you ask them about the definition of the word hope, you, you, you may really get some sort of a definition that really boils down to kind of wishful thinking. That tends to be really the, the way at least the world around us kind of operates when it comes to the word hope. You know, I kind of hope that I'm going to have a hamburger for lunch or, you know, I might be able to plan for that, but, you know, generally it's I, I know what the reality of it is and what I'd rather. You kind of hope for something and it's like wishful thinking almost. But the Bible, and it, when it talks about hope, actually defines it very differently than that. And there's a reason for that, and we're going to dive into that as we look at this particular passage of Scripture and as we look at the biblical concept or teaching of hope as we work through a variety of Scriptures this morning. But hope can be defined, this is from Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, hope can be defined as confident expectation. Confident expectation. According to the New Dictionary of Theology, hope is waiting expectantly for God's future activity. You just think about that for a second. Waiting expectantly for God's future activity. When we talk about hope from Scripture, it's vastly different than what the world says. Genuine hope is not wishful thinking, but a firm assurance about things that are unseen and still in the future. It's a definition or a statement from Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary. Today, in this particular passage of Scripture, we come across or are introduced to a woman who had a blood disorder. And in Mark chapter 5, it's recorded, but we can also find the same instance, the same situation with the same lady and Jesus recorded in Luke chapter 8 verses 43 through 48 and Matthew chapter 9 verses 20 to 22. I want to focus on Mark's account. Mark's is probably maybe the longest or maybe has a bit of the most detail in it. And so, I want us to look at this particular passage today when we look at hope for the hopeless. What we see is this in verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. You might not realize this, but these events take place directly after the ones that we talked about last week. The demon-possessed man who had those demons cast out of him, who met Jesus and came to know Christ as his Lord and Savior and experienced peace. Immediately after those events, Jesus decides that He's going to get in the boat and He's going to cross back over the Sea of Galilee. And when He gets there, a large, a large crowd gathers around Him. And it says, one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at His feet and begged Him earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can be made well and live and so Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. So what we see is this. He's actually approached by a specific individual, a man where Scripture tells us had a daughter who was 12 years old. 
And yet this 12-year-old girl is on her deathbed. And Jairus comes to Jesus because this man, along with the lady that we're going to meet, recognize that Jesus is their only hope. MacArthur says it this way, that Jairus enjoyed joy and contentment and and just a loving relationship with the daughter for 12 years. And this lady that we're going to be introduced to only experienced agony for 12 years. And yet, either way, both of them knew that Jesus was their only hope. See, this man's daughter is dying, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, I, I, I ask you, I, I beg you, come and heal my daughter. We could talk more about Jairus, but we're not really focusing on Jairus. This is just the situation that we find Jesus in when this lady comes into the picture. In verse 25, it says, Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything that she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. This is the hopeless situation that this lady finds herself in. As Caitlin shared with us, if I pointed us back to Leviticus chapter 15, which we just don't have time for, but I would encourage you, if you want to take the time to look at the law of the Old Testament regarding this, you can read in Leviticus chapter 15 about this situation. This lady had a blood disorder, a hemorrhage in some translations. She had a bleeding issue. And according to the Jewish Old Testament law, as a Jewish lady, this lady didn't just experience a blood disorder, a disease that was actually impacting her health-wise, one for which she went and saw many doctors, Mark records. In the King James Version, it says that she suffered much at the hands of the physicians. It's interesting that Luke, a physician in his gospel, doesn't bother to make mention of that part. You wonder whether it was like professional courtesy or something. I would say it's just because that's what the Holy Spirit had him record. But she, she went to doctor after doctor after doctor. She spent everything that she had trying to solve this issue, and there was no solution. In fact, it was getting worse. And that's bad enough. But what made it even worse is the impact that it had on the people around her. And that monologue this morning gave us a little bit of an insight on what she would have faced based on the law of the Old Testament. She was unclean. Anybody that touched anything that she touched was unclean. And that there were certain things that they had to do to become clean. She was never able to worship at the synagogue because of her perpetual state of uncleanness. She was never able to go to the temple and offer up regular sacrifices like the, 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 the Jewish people did. One of the vital aspects of worship to the Lord, she was unable to do for 12 long years. What if you or I couldn't come here and gather with other believers to worship the Lord 
for 12 years because of an illness. Not quite the same, but even at that, would we miss that? Would that break our hearts? Would we say, boys, I am missing out on something absolutely vital. This lady was unable to worship the Lord in the temple or in the synagogue. And her situation actually was impacting her, but impacting the people around her, completely isolating her. You actually see that isolation in the way that she approaches Jesus. It says, having heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. She didn't approach him. She didn't speak to him. She didn't even want him to know that she was going to touch his clothing. She heard about Jesus. She had heard what he was teaching and the miracles that he was doing. In fact, later on, Jesus actually identifies her faith, so she believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that he could heal her. And so she approached Jesus without Jesus knowing. She took advantage of the crowd, pressing in on Jesus. And she even said to herself, if I touch his clothes, I will be made well. And that's in fact what she did. She reached out and she touched his, the hem of his garment and instantly her flow of blood ceased and she sensed in her body that she was healed from her affliction. This lady approached Jesus because Jesus was her only hope. And Jesus healed her. Immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd, and he said, who touched my clothes? In the response of the disciples, you kind of get a hint of sarcasm. When I read it to myself this week, I kind of read it that way because I can just see them kind of responding this way. His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? I'm kind of reading it that way because they, I'm sure that they kind of baffled them why Jesus would say that. Like, you see what we see, right? You see the people are touching you. What's the big deal? But Jesus knew that he had healed someone and he wanted to confront that individual. And in verse 32 it says, But he looked around to see who had done this, and the woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Why would she be afraid? Why would she come with fear and trembling? Well, for one thing, she should never have touched his garment as somebody who was unclean. She did it without his knowledge. Maybe knowing who Jesus was, she wasn't sure how Jesus was going to respond as the Messiah. And yet Jesus says this to her, daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. I'm going to come back to that verse in just a minute. But what I want us to see is really two things based really from two question perspectives. The first thing that I want us to consider this morning is where does our hope come from? Where does our hope come from? I think already by now, based on this particular passage of Scripture, you probably are already figuring out the answer. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you already know the answer. 
Where does our hope come from? Well, first of all, I think that we need to say what one reality before we get into what the Scripture says, where our hope comes from. First and foremost, I think it's important to spell out very clearly that for the unbeliever, they have no hope. Seems like a really harsh thing to say, right? But the reality of Scripture tells us that for the unbeliever, there is no hope. They, they can have the wishful thinking that the world kind of defines as hope. Think about it. You hear it a lot with some of the conflict going on. You look at the news reel, and you just see one disparaging thing after another, and you hear people talk, and they, they long for peace. Especially this time of year, the word peace comes up a lot. We talked about it last week, what peace really is. But there are people that are hoping for peace in the Middle East. They're hoping for peace in the Ukraine. They're hoping for peace here, and they're hoping for peace there. But really, it, it is wishful thinking. They, they're, they're hoping for it. They have no means to bring it about. They're depending on human beings to bring this about. The same human beings that got into the conflict in the first place. Scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, at that time you were without Christ. Paul is saying to the Ephesian believers that at one point they were without Christ. They were lost. They were unbelievers. They didn't know Christ as their Savior and Lord. He says, at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. There is the reality of someone who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. They're defined as someone who is without hope and without God. That's a pretty desperate situation to be in, I would say. That's a pretty scary place to be in, according to the Scriptures. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 4, verse 13, it says this, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. What's Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about the, the, the taking up of the church to meet Christ in the air, to forever be with the Lord Jesus. And they were concerned about those people who had already passed away who were believers. What about those people that had already passed away? Are, are they, are they going to meet Jesus? Are they going to be forever with Jesus? And Paul says, I don't want you to be like the unbelievers who have no hope. I want you to be encouraged you have the hope of resurrection, the hope of going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. The lost person doesn't have that hope. That's the reality of where people find themselves who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. They're described as people without hope and without God. For the Christian, our hope comes from God. Our hope is in 
the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible contains references, uh, reference after reference of people setting their hope in God or Christ. Psalm 37.9, this is what the psalm writer says. I just want to give you Scripture after Scripture as we talk about hope here, because I don't know about you, but maybe as believers, we don't think about what the Bible says about hope as nearly as much as we ought to. The psalm writer says this, Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. My confident expectation is in you. What does he say after that? He says, rescue me from all my transgressions. Psalm writer is saying that his hope of salvation is in God. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says this. 1 Peter chapter 121 says this, through him you believe in God who raised him, Jesus, from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. See, as, the Lord, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope is in God. Our confident expectation is in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in God. We can go on. There are things that we hope for that are connected to God. We hope in God's promises as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That goes along with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where we expect one day to be caught up together with Christ and to be with the Lord forever. That hasn't happened yet. But based on God's Word and His promises, we wait expectantly for the day when that's going to come as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes I've been lately talking to believers, and it comes up on a regular basis, the phrase, even so, Lord Jesus, come. When we look at the desperate situation of the world around us, it's really easy as believers to say, I cannot wait for Jesus to come back. Because we have that confident expectation that Jesus is going to come back, because He promised He said that He, that he would. You know, the lady with the issue of blood set her hope on, in Christ. She experienced salvation when she con was confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ, when she encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. How, how can I say that I'm, I'm confident that this lady wasn't just healed from her affliction, but that she was saved from, by the Lord Jesus Christ? In verse 34, I want to come back to this verse for a second, because it's one thing to talk about her miracle, and it's wonderful that we talk about the miracle of her healing. I think that's fantastic. I think that's exciting. I think it talks about and, and shows the, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that, in fact, Jesus was who He claimed to be, and that His miracles prove that out. The Jesus miracles and the miracles recorded in the Scripture are not like ones that we hear talked about among certain uh, Christian groups today. This miracle was one that could be verified could be 
proven out to be true. It wasn't just that she felt like she was healed. She actually was healed, and she could actually demonstrate that, and it could be tested and checked. And that's wonderful in and of itself, the fact that she had that fellowship with people around her restored, the fact that she could begin to worship at the, in the synagogue and go to the temp- temple once again. Those are all fantastic things. But what's way more fantastic than that is that she came into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In verse 34, Jesus says this, Daughter, He said to her, your faith has saved you. Just by way of a little trivia, this is the only time that Jesus calls somebody daughter in the Gospels. Isn't that interesting? You'll actually hear a similar statement that Jesus makes to another person that gets healed actually next week, I think. And I'll save it for next week. But He says in a very loving way, daughter, your faith has saved you. Just so you know, the word saved there is the word sozo, and in the Gospels, it is regularly used and connected to the word faith to emphasize salvation. And so, right there in and of itself, I firmly believe that Jesus is not just saying, hey, you're healed, but He's saying, you're saved from your sin. Your faith has saved you. Her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ saved her. How do I... Why do I believe that? Not just because that statement says it, but by what Jesus says right after that. He says, daughter, your faith has saved you. And then he says, go in peace. Though this was recorded in the Greek, it would have been the Hebrew mindset that Jesus was relaying to this other Jewish person. The Hebrew of shalom, peace as we talked about it last week, this well-being of both soul and body. She wasn't just healed bodily, she was healed spiritually. She was forgiven of her sins. She was saved through Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, go in peace. And then He says this, be healed from your affliction. This scourge that she had experienced for 12 long years was completely healed. See, she experienced the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. Where does our hope come from? It comes from the Lord in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, what's the impact of that hope? What is the impact of that hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ? One, 2 Corinthians 1, 7 says that our hope is unshaken. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope is unshaken. Why is it unshaken? Because it's based on and based in the Lord Jesus Christ. God Almighty is the source of our hope, the object of our hope. And you know what? There's no need for our hope to ever be shaken because it's in God. It's in His promises. It's in His Word. Actually, in three different instances in Psalm 119, David, the psalm writer, says that he puts his hope in God's Word. We put our hope in God. We put our hope in God's Word. We put our hope in God's promises. We put our hope in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. These are all connected to God. Have you ever thought about the fact that you put your hope in God's Word? 
I got thinking about that from the psalm writer's perspective. He says, I put my hope in your word. Why would that be so important? Because how I know who God is, how I get to know what God is like, how, do I, how I get to know who I am in reference to who God is, my desperate need for salvation, my desperate need for God, how do I know the promises of God? How do I know about the love of God? It's in His Word. I need to be reading God's Word to get to know God better, to get to know how God's telling me to live, to see the promises of God, to look at the future hope that I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes through God's Word. I wonder sometimes when believers seem to be hopeless, people who have said that they have put their faith and trust in Christ, they've set their hope in God, and yet they live as if they have no hope. I get baffled by that. Except that when I begin to talk to them, more often than I can count, it's, it it's usually stems from the fact that they spend very little time in God's Word. They spend very little time in personal prayer times with the Lord. And when I don't know God's Word, I, I begin to look at life hopelessly because I'm not reading His promises. I'm not being constantly taught by His Holy Spirit. I'm not being reassured the way that God wants to reassure me and give me that steadfastness. See, my hope is unshaken according to 2 Corinthians 1.7, but my hope is actually steadfast according to 1 Thessalonians 1.3. See, our hope is to be steadfast. Our hope is set before us as believers as an encouragement, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. Hope is connected closely with faith in Hebrews 11.1 and joy in Romans 5.2 and perseverance in Romans 5.3 through 5. Kind of hard to persevere when I am not setting my hope on the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm not being reminded of the hope that I have in Christ because I'm not reading His Word. Hope is... Hope is essential. Hope is vital. I just want to read 1 Corinthians 15, a few verses in 1 Corinthians 15, because I think this verse is very familiar to us. We tend to read it an awful lot at funerals, which is kind of unfortunate. But I want us to see something that Paul says. Paul starts off this particular chapter by really basically uh, laying out for the Corinthian church probably one of the earliest church creeds, one that would have been communicated just, just after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul writes this, one of the earliest New Testament books to be written, he says in verse 3, he says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. This is the most important thing that he communicated to the Corinthian church. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he proceeds to tell how many times the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected body appeared to different people who witnessed it with their very eyes. 
Jason Jimenez, in, in, in his book, Hijacking Jesus, actually lays out 17 different instances in the New Testament where Jesus appeared to somebody or groups of somebody after his resurrection. Why is Paul going into this? Because you know what? If Jesus never rose from the dead, Paul argues that we are of all people to be most pitied as Christians. See, our hope isn't just in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says this, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. But then he says this, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of them who have slept. See, we look forward to being resurrected once again and given incorruptible, immortal bodies. And why do we get to look forward to that with such confidence as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because Christ rose from the dead. These are aspects of our hope. Lastly, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Or the word sanctify there is you. Sanctify Christ in your hearts as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Christian, are you ready at any time to respond to an unsaved person about the reason for the hope that's in you? If they were looking at your life, would they say, this person has a confidence, a confidence in Christ, a confidence in the future that I don't quite understand? And you can say, hey, you know what? I'd like to give you the reason for the hope that's in me. I'm ready, willing, and able to do that. Christian, are we ready to give a defense for the reason for the hope that's in us? Are we living hopelessly because we're not in God's Word and we're not focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ the way that we ought and we're not getting into the Scriptures the way that we ought, communing with God the way that we ought? to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that comes through Him and His Word from His steadfast love. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. My question for you is, have you come to the place where Jesus is your only hope? Have you tried and tried and tried to go after this and that and the other only to find it leaving you empty, looking for hope in all the wrong places when the Lord Jesus Christ is ready and willing and available to save you from your sin and to give you a personal relationship with Him? If you come to the place where Jesus is your only hope, I would urge you today, if you don't know Christ as Savior, trust Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. Put your hope in God this morning. Christian, be reminded and encouraged today that your hope is in God, that you have a confident expectation of one day 
experiencing life eternal with the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready to give a a reason for the hope that's in you? I trust that you are to anybody that asks. Thank you.